Okay, we're going, we're going. We are... Hello, and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault, uh, the podcast where I get to abscond with, or get away with, or steal approximately half an hour of your life. Thanks for letting me do that. Thanks for joining me. I am stoked today. I am more excited than usual for this episode of the podcast, in case you can't tell by my um, kind of aberrant rambling about um, this podcast. I can't wait. Um, Let's just dive into it. If you listened to the previous episode, you know that I'm doing three decades of film, and my top picks of those three decades. So last episode, I did my top, technically 13, I did a top 10 with three runner-ups, top 13 films made in the 2010s. Now moving backwards, I'm going to the 2000s, the best films of the decade. And I'll be honest, I could not cut down, like this was like next to impossible for me. There were so many good films and you'll be able to tell that Many of my favorite films of all time were made in this decade. Um, I don't know why, but you'll you'll see that. Um, okay, well, so for my honorable mentions, I'll, I guess I'll start with those. There's like 10 of them. <laughs> so I basically did a top 20 because I just couldn't bring myself to cut them down. So I'll just list those off real quick and then get into the top 10. <clears throat> so the honorable mentions for the 2000s, in no order... Our Garden State, Zach Braff's film, which made us all feel more alive, you know, as we're going through our emo indie phases, and Phenomenal Soundtrack. Um, if you grew up with Garden State, you know that that film is just one of those that, like... Anyway, can't spend too much time on these. The Village by M. Night Shyamalan kind of awakened my interest in horror and creepy, eerie plots and things like that. Uh, Big Fish. Man. Now I'm questioning all of my choices for this. But Big Fish, um, again, if you grew up with Big Fish, you know how special that film can be in your heart as far as just the unique, weird approach it takes to life and to story. Uh, The Dark Knight, I feel like that one just had to be on here because that's. I think that that's one of the greatest as, as far as scope, acting, writing. It's one of the greatest films um, of all time, probably Heath Ledger's performance, Christian Bale. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of like one of those legendary films, but it didn't make it into my personal top ten favorites, if that makes sense. The Hurt Locker, great war film. Casino Royale, best Bond film ever made. Uh, Sahara, it's one of the funnest films I think I've ever seen. Um, can't go wrong with Sahara. A, a lot of critics and people didn't like Sahara. I thought it, I still think it's one of the funnest, most satisfying films ever made. And it really makes you want to travel to North Africa. Um, all the oceans films, I really, those just, again, have a very fun, special place in my heart. Um, they're some of my favorites as far as like funnest films to watch. They don't get old, the acting, the writing, um, you know, they're, they're just like, legendary all-time classics. Ocean's 8, one of the worst films ever made. Um, I don't want to get into a rant on Ocean's 8, but it was awful. It's disrespectful to the Ocean's franchise, disrespectful to women. (laughs) Um, Just awful filmmaking. It wasn't made by the same people either, in case you didn't know that. Steven Soderbergh directed the first three, 
and some no-name person came up with Ocean's 8, so it makes sense. And then Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the Coen Brothers film, um, also with George Clooney, and that's also just one of those like all-time greats. The soundtrack, again, um, my dad and I like have that kind of in our normal playlist lineups, just the soundtrack alone is worth seeing that movie, but it's hilarious. I'm laughing out loud the entire time. Okay, so that is a lot of honorable mentions. Like I said, there were so many great films that came out in this decade, um, but we're going to move into the top 10. So, starting with number 10, The Fountain. Came out in 2006, Darren Aronofsky, Rachel Weisz, and Hugh Jackman. Um, The Fountain is a interesting film. It, It... it's like it takes place in three eras of human history. And it's, it's kind of asking the question, what would it be like to live forever? So one takes place during like the colonial period where like the Spanish are invading the new world and searching for the tree of life or the fountain of life. And, um, and Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz are alive um, like all through all three of these. And I think the idea it, it's, it's kind of vague as far as what exactly happens. But the idea is they find the, the fountain of life and they can live forever. So Hugh Jackman, this like conquistador, finds the tree of life, drinks from it, lives forever. Um, and then it cuts to like the modern day, present day. And there's like, um, and in, in each one, he's like immortal. <coughs> Excuse me. And Rachel Weisz is dying. And then in the next one, it's like futuristic. And he's in some glass orb flying through space into this bright light. And again, she is embodied in the tree. And there's like a lot of symbolism. A lot of people will think this is super weird. Um, And it is a strange movie, but I cry almost every time. It's beautiful. It's expressive and emotive and poetic. And um, not... Not a fun watch, but I've watched it plenty of times, and it's definitely worth viewing. Uh, Number nine, my favorite Wes Anderson film, uh, by a a close margin, my favorite Wes Anderson film is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Um, It's got Bill Murray, um, Owen Wilson, and Kate Blanchett, and plenty of other great actors. I just think it's like the the funnest Wes Anderson film. <laughs> Ned Plimpton, and uh, oh my gosh, it's just it's hilarious. But you know, it has the typical Wes Anderson tensions, the family tensions, the drama, the struggles. But it, this one, um, maybe you'll get the sense that I I love like a good adventure, something that kind of stirs up adventure or livelihood or the desire to like get out and be more than um, more than you are right now. I guess. And so, you know, if you're unfamiliar, he's a, uh, Bill Murray plays this, like, what's that guy? Jacques Cousteau. Um, he's basically a Jacques Cousteau type making these documentaries about the ocean and the far places of the world and exploring. And, um, but it's also like, like behind, behind the scenes, what's his life like? What's his family like? Um, it's just really, really great. And, uh, (laughs) So many great lines from that movie that my brother and I quote all the time. Um, My second place, just for the record, which I sadly cut, is the Darjeeling Limited, also with Owen Wilson. 
And uh, Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody is one of my favorite actors as well, as you'll see as we get closer to my number one pick. Number eight. This is, again, one of my family's favorites. Um, my whole family watches this probably once a year. Uh, and this is Dan in Real Life with Steve Carell. Um, what's her name? Juliette Binoche? Is that the right actress? I don't have IMDb in front of me, obviously. But um, Steve Carell, what's that, what's that comedian's name? He's in Good Luck Chuck. Okay, I'm doing a really bad job at this. But... Um, oh, it also has Emily uh, Emily Blunt, um, before she was super well-known, appears in this film. And this movie, I just love it. Again, great soundtrack by Sandre Lurch. I actually discovered him because of this movie. Um, he kind of did the acoustic music that plays all throughout the film. And it just has this, like, Northeast Coast vibe of, like, a family getaway but there's family drama. Um, but then there's some really, really poetic scenes like where they're sitting on a dock eating muffins and drinking coffee. And it's just like, um, maybe it's nostalgic for me who grew up on Cape Cod. And I'm like, man, I really just want to go back to that epoch and that the, the gray overcast days where you're sitting on a bay and you're, um, you know, with your family and you're with people you love and, um, it's just this, this this feeling I think is communicated through the film, and um, you know it's it's a feel good movie. It's really really funny. It's uh, laugh out loud hilarious in my opinion. Um, but there's there's a lot of depth underneath it. There's just like this kind of like intimacy you get with the characters because a lot of the film is shot inside this huge ca- cabin where the family is having their vacation, and. Um, yeah, and I think because – and I watched the behind-the-scenes thing, and they're talking about shooting inside this cabin. There's this intimacy that comes with that. It's not like a set. It's not outside. You're, like, forced to create the angles that you're allowed because of the cabin. And that creates this um, intimacy you get with the characters. Um, even though the family's pretty big, you kind of get to know them all pretty well. And Steve Carell does a great job of delivering this – kind of heartbroken widower performance um, with his family and with wrestling with life. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really good. Kind of echoes of What About Bob, if you've seen that from the 80s, um, but not really. <laughs> um, if you'll see it, if you've seen both those movies, you'll know what I'm talking about. Moving on to number seven, my favorite Quentin Tarantino film of all time, 2000. Is that right? 2006? I thought it was later than that. Um, Inglorious Bastards, the World War II Nazi killer film. So, so good. Some people think it's too gory, mainly because of the one bear Jew baseball bat scene. I honestly love that scene. It, uh, I don't know. I just think it's hilarious. <laughs> um, especially when he comes up and he's like, Big Mickey knocks it out of the pack. And that's Eli Roth. If you don't know who he is, he's like directed films far gorier than Inglorious Bastards. He made like the Hostel films and the Green Inferno, and um, but he's an actor in this movie as one of the as one of the bastards. And it's so ah, the whole film is just just has this this feel to it, the sense of like it's like a cinematic touch of this is what life could have been like in the forties 
if this and this and this had happened differently. And actually, just last night, <clears throat> just last night, I watched Django Unchained, and I decided that that's my number two favorite Tarantino film by a, by a very close margin. Because I actually enjoyed it a lot more the second time, knowing that the two horrible scenes were coming up, um, the Mandingo fight scene and the the scene where the guy gets eaten by dogs. <laughs> um, but it's like it's like he uses that brutality to to build up the hatred you feel for the antagonists. Where, um, you know, in the one case it's Nazis, in the other case it's the slave owners, the plantation owners, in the eighteen hundreds, and um, and Tarantino obviously calls those his rewritten history films, where it's like the 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 urge toward justice, which we all feel inside of us get satisfied by watching these films where you watch Jews kill Nazis and then where you watch slaves kill the white slave owners. And there's this, um, you know, uh, not, not necessarily speaking quote unquote as a Christian, but just like the, the human satisfaction that comes from watching this justice get done by reversing these roles. It's just so much fun and satisfying. And Tarantino has such a unique style and if you don't like the violence, that's understandable of a Tarantino film. Um, I think the gore is obviously way like so far over the top that it kind of bypasses the believability. It doesn't really disturb you or disturb me anyway. Um, but anyway, Inglorious Bastards, I just love everything about that film. In both films, I love Christoph Waltz's performance. Um, he's the bad guy. He's the Nazi in Inglorious. I think he is one of if not the most evil characters in any film. And I love it because he is so polite and so nice for like 95% of the film. And that's why he's just got this like deep, dark, um, like evil behind his eyes. And yeah, it, it's, I just love the, his character. He's such a great actor. And then I also love how Tarantino flipped him for Django and made him this like the best guy, like the most lovable guy you could ever know. Um, kind of fighting on the side of the slaves, and um, yeah, he's a phenomenal actor. I love him, Christoph Waltz. Um, so, Inglorious Bastards was number seven. <clears throat> um, again, if you don't like gore, you shouldn't see it. If you're okay with a little bit, and it's like cartoonish type of gore. Um, some heavy themes though. Um, I really love the bear Jew scene where you see a guy beaten to death with a baseball bat. Um, don't ask me why. Um, it's just a great scene. It's a phenomenal, like, ah, that anyway, moving on. Number six, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Um, if you haven't seen this or you don't know what it's about, it is so hard to explain. Basically it's this company that will erase a person from your memory um, so like after a heart, a heartbreak, like a breakup, um, or if your dog dies, you can erase the memory of your dog from all of your, your psyche kind of to erase the pain that accompanies that. So Jim Carrey in a serious role plays this guy who gets rejected by Clementine, um, who is played by Kate Winslet and, uh, because she broke up with him, she left him, and um, and so he's just in so much pain that he decides he has to 
have her erased from his brain. So a lot of the film takes place inside of his memories with these flashbacks to the times of them together where they, uh, I don't know, they, 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 they're just building this relationship over the course of a couple years. And, um, and you see the beauty, you see the pain of their relationship, um, you see some of the dull, boring moments, and you see, you see them building this relationship, but then you also see it falling apart, and then you see the aftermath and the pain that they go through. But then there's this obvious twist where it's inside of his head while they're trying to erase these memories, and it's not shot linearly, so you're trying to figure out what happened when, and you, you kind of construct the the uh, chronology of their relationship as you watch it. And maybe it's because I saw it in high school and it just has this, again, like a deep nostalgic place in my heart of um, the poetic nature of it. And some of the shots um, just have this staying power inside of your mind. Um, like the opening shot when he's looking out the window at this little mobile hanging in front of the window and, um, I don't know. It just kind of shaped a lot of th- a lot of ways I saw the world when I was in high school, seeing it for the first time, and yeah, and then Elijah Wood, Mark Ruffalo are both in it, and um, Kirsten Dunst, and they all. Do, it's just a, a very well put together film, and it's beautiful and poetic and tragic and funny and kind of everything all at the same time. Um, there is some serious weight to it, but at the end of the day, it's like hailed as one of those indie like, um, you know, one of those films that everybody needs to see because it's just so unique and powerful and lovely. And, um, yeah, it's hard to sum up just the, you know, um, I also think it kind of captures some of the ethos of, um, 2004 when it was made kind of like that indie scene, like the, what were artistic people like in 2004, you watch this film and you kind of see what was happening in culture at the time and how they captured that. Um, also, Tobias from Arrested Development is in it, <laughs> very small character, and I just love David Cross so much. Um, so anyway, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was number six. Number five, this film I saw for the first time in 2012 when I was backpacking from Boston to New York City, and I was in the middle of the mountains, at staying at some random person, I was couch surfing, so I was in some random person's apartment, and they were at a party. They trusted me with their whole apartment, and I watched. I put I popped in this DVD, watch it, and I was blown away by some of the beauty, some of the storytelling of it. There are some things I love about this film, but it also has one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen. Um, actually now second most disturbing, probably, uh, scenes I've ever seen because Guillermo del Toro has this really unique way of doing violence where he doesn't use CGI. He, I think what he does usually is he like builds a dummy body and then kind of like destroys that. However, it's being violently destroyed. So it actually has like some serious weight when, when these things are happening and you feel the violence in a way that you wouldn't in like say a Marvel or DC film where someone gets punched and they fly across the universe and crash into a skyscraper. And you're like, I didn't feel that at all because there's this weightlessness to these 
to this violence. But um, but as you're watching the Guillermo del Toro films, you feel the uh, it's like yeah, if I get punched in the face, it's gonna hurt a lot and knock me down, and my face will probably um, be scarred for a while if teeth aren't knocked out. Or um, anyway, there's this, a couple very violent scenes in Pan's Labyrinth. My number five film, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, the gore is pretty realistic, and for some reason, he shows a leg amputation, which is um, medical, but for some reason, he shows it, and it's not even that important to the film. But there's some other violent scenes. Um, the interesting thing about how Del Toro does violence again is in an interview, he said he hates how um, in films, if someone gets shot in the head, they always get shot in the center of the forehead, like right above their nose. It's always like a perfectly center shot. You know, the blood comes out and they fall down, you know, or they get shot directly in the heart or they get shot. Um, or if they get stabbed, it's like right in the stomach or, you know? And so he said, um, when he was a young boy, he fell on a fence and the fence, like a fence post went into his armpit and he said it was the most painful thing he ever experienced, obviously. And in several of his films, people will get stabbed in the armpit. And it's because, um, for one, he kind of knows what that feels like. And two, it's because if you think about real-world violence, it's not this perfectly orchestrated, um, clean-cut, like, shot straight to the center of the forehead or get stabbed in the heart or, you know, whatever. And, um, like, often if you're just, like stabbing at someone, you may catch them in the armpit. You may catch them in the side somewhere. Or um, you'll see that in Pan's Labyrinth. Like a, a guy gets shot. Um, I won't say who because it's a spoiler. One guy gets shot like in the cheek, kind of below his eye. And for a second, his like his eyelid on that side sags down and then he falls down. And it's like you don't see people get shot in the cheek that often, but it makes it that much more believable um, the way that he does violence, but, um, yeah, some very disturbing scenes in that film, but, but, but one of my favorite film creatures of all time, um, it's kind of legendary from this film. Um, it's the, what did they call him? I forget his name, but everyone just knows him as like the eye hands guy. Cause he has eyeballs that he pops into his hands and he chases people around holding his hands out in front of him with his eyeballs in the palms of his hands and his face is just kind of flat skin. He has a mouth and then the rest is just flat skin on his head. And he's just chasing people around using his hand eyes to see. And it's phenomenal. Like I don't, I just have a a very special place in my heart for well-made creatures like that. And when you, we first meet him, he pops the eyeballs into his hands and then holds them over his face. And there's this, this legendary scene or shot of him just like holding his hands with the eyes in front of his face. And, um, you can look that up. He's great. Even if you don't want to see the whole film, just look him up. Um, because he's so clever. And the other cool thing about Del Toro is he also is anti CGI. So there's actually a guy inside that costume acting it out. Same with pan, the goat god who shows up um, as an actual dude in this very complex, intricate costume. And, um, yeah, Del Toro is um, 
He's interesting. Also, his movie The Orphanage, or The Orphan, I can't remember which one it is. Really, really well done, creepy, scary, horror, without going over the top. It's kind of like, that one is more of a subtle, these boys and girls show up at this orphanage, and I won't say any more. But yeah, if you haven't seen a Del Toro film, you need to. Most of them are in Spanish, but um, if you don't mind subtitles, or if you do, get over it. But <laughs> um, yeah, this is a Spanish film, and yeah, just the 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 complexity of the characters. The bad guy in this film may be more evil than Christoph Waltz is in Inglorious Bastards. Um, the difference is he he doesn't have this like pleasant, polite, deceitful side. He's not like, oh hello, please take a seat. You know, he's just straight up mean and evil the whole time. Um, but some of the things you see him do make you hate him so much. So while Christoph Waltz's bad guy is like polite but evil, this guy is just straight up mean and evil. So there's a, a little bit of difference. Um, it's not quite as nuanced, but he is just an evil, evil guy. Um, and the, the other thing about this film, and then I'll move on, is it kind of it blurs the line between reality and fantasy, and it leaves it, leaves it open-ended as to whether or not this little girl is imagining all of these fantastical things or if um, they're actually real. And it doesn't answer that question and it, I think that this is something that kind of it'll put people in two categories. The people who believe that these things were really happening and she wasn't just imagining them. And then the other category, which um, is people saying like, oh, it was just her imagination. It was her way of dealing with the trauma that she was going through in this camp um, and so on and so on. Either way is acceptable. And either way, the film is very beautifully made. It is intense, but it's also warm and violent. And um, yeah, it, it has a really great ending. Um, I don't know if it's a great. It's sad. But um, yeah, this is one of the greatest films of all time, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, definitely a must-see if you can stomach a little bit of gore and violence and tragedy. Number four. This one, um, this one is again so much fun. It um, it's one of my favorite characters of Brad Pitt, and it's definitely my favorite Guy Ritchie film, best one by a long shot, and that's Snatch. If you haven't seen Snatch, it is hilarious. My brother and I again quote this one all the time. Um, <laughs> you lost gorgeous George. He's not a pair of effing car keys now, is he? Or, um, ah, it's just hilarious. Like, Guy Ritchie's characters always bounce off of each other in really fun, um, really fun ways. Like, their characters are like, if you took a handful of rubber bouncy balls and threw them into a, an empty room, and they just bounce all over the place. That's kind of what his movies are like. Um, and there's this chaotic order to it, where it looks chaotic, and then you watch it again for a second time, and you're like, oh, this was intentional, so it led to this, bouncing off this, and this, and this, and this. And there's this, like, motion and um, direction to the film, which you may not catch the first time through. But it's hilarious, and all of the different plot lines tie together all throughout the film. And, uh, yeah, Guy Ritchie's super fun. Brad Pitt, as this gypsy, is hilarious. I think as one of the 
one of the best shots in film history when Brad Pitt, during his, I think it's his first fight in the boxing ring, um, I can't spoil it, but his the expression on his face and what happens in that scene is absolutely legendary. I think it's one of the best shots in film history of all time. <laughs> um, it really makes me love Brad Pitt even more. I love that guy. Um, but yeah, it's kind of all all name cast. Um, Benicio del Toro, um, Brad Pitt, Jason Statham. Um, I can't remember the other names of the other guys, but you, you'll you'll know them from everybody from everywhere. They're in tons of films. Um, yeah, and there's the quick cuts. The snatch is just it's a must see. A little bit of violence, not too bad, honestly. It's it's more kind of like funny violence a lot of the time. Um, uh, with like jewel thieves and underground boxing rings, and it's just like fun and gritty. Um, but the thing that might get to you in this film is the language. It's British, and so there's just like nonstop bad language. Um, but it uh, it's it's definitely worth a watch if you if you don't mind like endless f bombs. <laughs> but um, super fun snatch is my number three pick. Now moving into the or sorry, snatch is my number four pick. Moving into the top three, this is. Um, this isn't this. This was not that hard for me to order. It's a pretty clear order for me the way that these are arranged. So number three used to be my number one favorite film of all time. Um, when I was probably in high school, after it came out, um, was when it uh, was my number one for a couple years. So it definitely has a special place in my heart. It's cute. It's twee. It's fun, um, but it also has some heavy undertones. And the visuals are, like, really unique in this film, too. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and that's Stranger Than Fiction. We get to see Will Ferrell play a, a serious character for once. And it's, it's a comedy, but it's definitely not the normal Will Ferrell type of comedy. Um, in Stranger Than Fiction, he plays this accountant, or sorry, this IRS agent, who is so dry and bland, but you also see the world kind of through his eyes and the the expressive way that he kind of longs for the world to be more than it is, despite how boring and bland and routine his life is as an IRS agent. And he encounters this woman, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's this like free-spirited hippie artist baker, and um, she's like the polar opposite of him in every way. And the other thing that gets mixed in is he starts hearing this woman narrating his life. And it's a British woman just like narrating his life and he can hear her. And he's like, what are you doing? You stupid voice. Why are you like describing everything I do? And Dustin Hoffman gets brought in as this English professor. And it's, um, I don't know, it's a profound film. And it's like, where how much does human life matter as it's held up to artistic rigor and like meaning and um, what does it mean to live life to the fullest as cheesy as it is? They, they kind of acknowledge that at one point and he's like, um, like he lived out, uh, what, how's the line go? Something like um, as the choruses of 1000 pop punk songs 
say he lived his life or something like that. And it's true. And you see this character shift in Will Ferrell as he um, kind of wakes up to how beautiful life could be and how um, unbeautiful, I guess, he had been living it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, this was a super unique film. It's a unique tone to take on a film um, because it really does a great job of blending the the depth of existential meaninglessness of life and like uh, plot theory, story theory, as well as some good humor and some intimate characters and some beautiful moments that you you see with them and um, yeah, <laughs> maybe even. Um, One of the most romantic gestures in any film is when he takes his baker crush um, a box of, like, flowers, but it's different packages of baking flour, F-L-O-U-R. And he's like, I brought you flowers. And it's, like, a dozen different packets of flour. Anyway, it's so cute. I'm like, oh, my gosh. All the cute little things in this movie. Um, It's great. It's I, I think because it was my number one for so long, I just had to put it in the top three. Um, I don't know if it still would if I had seen it for the first time today. But anyway, moving along to the top two. Um, in second place, this film, um, I got to preface it. You haven't heard of it, but it uh, has a giant budget because there was this millionaire who funded the entire thing himself because no studio wanted to produce such an epic film. It was shot in over 30 countries. Because, again, he didn't want to use CGI. He wanted to use these beautiful, real places to shoot this fantastical, imaginative film and tell the story he wanted to tell. And most of this film takes place within this little girl's imagination. And she's imagining this story because she's in the hospital as this other guy in the hospital is telling it to her. So some of it's like goofy and weird and it's like this is how a little kid would hear this story being told and then picture it and there's some crazy shots and the cool thing is there's very little CGI used so it's like this, the cinematography is just unreal. It is amazing Um, and they went to the coolest places on earth to shoot it and there's these like stairwells that go deep into the earth and then there's these palaces and these islands shaped like butterflies and um deserts uh, like huge sand dunes in i think it's namibia or zambia where they shot that and um they just went all over the world to make this film 2006 it's sing tarsum's the fall it was co-produced by david fincher um who if you didn't know made fight club um and that film may or may not appear in the next list. Um, but David Fincher, all-time cinema great, but he uh, co-produced it. And um, the story is good. The story isn't great. The story is good. Um, but honestly, the beauty and the romantic um, whimsy that this film kind of stirs up in me made it number two. So that should tell you something about how good the cinematography is in this film, how beautiful it's shot. Um, And there's some really, really cool and powerful scenes as well, like the protagonist chasing after his love. Um, The little girl's 
uh, performance actually is phenomenal as well. They didn't give her any lines because she is just too young to memorize lines. But they they told Lee Pace, the actor, um, they told him like where the scene should go. So he was the one kind of leading the scene. And the little girl was just like going along with it. <laughs> and, and she is so adorable. And um, yeah, she's great. The little, the little Spanish girl. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to describe. It's this, the two of them are both in the hospital in the 1920s in California. And he starts telling her this story. Um, and then the, most of it is her imagining the story inside of her head. Um, and some of like elements of the story reflect things that they see happening around or that she sees happening around her in the hospital. And a lot of the characters who show up in the story are modeled after the people in the hospital that she sees and some creepy things, um, like the, uh, the hazmat suit or whatever it's called becomes all the evil guys inside of her head. And, um, I, I'm doing a terrible job of describing it if you haven't seen it, but you got to see the fall 2006, the fall, beautiful, beautiful film. And my number one drum roll, please. Number one film. And this is not only my number one film of the 2000s. This is my number one favorite film of all time. Um, a couple years ago, I, re- I realized this. I was like, you know, I have a lot of good films. I have a lot of favorite films. But there is one film which I adore more than any other film in the entire world that I've ever seen. And I could watch it again and again and again and never get bored with it. I probably watch it two or three times a year. And I'm just constantly asking myself, how did they make the perfect film? And it is the perfect film in... Excuse me. It's the perfect film in the sense that it has comedy, which lands perfectly all throughout. The actors deliver on their acting all throughout the entire film. Um, it has my two two of my favorite actors mentioned in previous films, Mark Ruffalo and Adrian Brody and Rachel Weisz. They all appeared in other films in this list. Um, directed by Ryan Johnson who, if you don't know, he directed the final episode of Breaking Bad. He directed Star Wars The Last Jedi. He directed Looper. Um, Brick was his first film that put him on the map. And uh, plenty of other stuff. And Knives Out, his most recent film. He's known for these weaving, zigzagging plot lines and big twists and big reveals. And for whatever reason, out of all of his films, this one is the most overlooked And I think it's because it was overshadowed by the Wes Anderson film that came out that same year because he has a similar style to Wes Wes Anderson in this film. But it's I I honestly prefer it to Wes Anderson. It's it's close, but it's not exactly a Wes Anderson film. But I could see why they would kind of be categorized similarly. Um, My favorite film of all time is The Brothers Bloom. Uh, 2008, The Brothers Bloom... Not to be confused with the Brothers Grimm. It's the Brothers Bloom. Um, There's these two brothers who are con men, Adrian Brody and Mark Ruffalo, and they're con men, and they're orphans, and all their lives they've been kind of getting by by conning people. So we meet them in their mid-30s when they're kind of... um, They've ridden the romantic arc of the con man life, and they've constructed these elaborate cons, 
And all their cons, he says in one scene, he says, my brother writes cons the way dead Russians write novels <laughs> with um, symbolism. Oh, what does he say? It's really, it's funny, but he swears. Um, he's like, uh, he's like, my brother writes cons the way dead Russians write novels with embedded symbolism and story arcs and shit like that. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, and it like every, like for the first probably 10 times I saw it, I picked up new jokes every single time. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. One of my favorite lines I saw recently, which somehow I had never caught before they're in Prague and Mark Ruffalo goes, you know, last time I was in Prague, I was in love. And she goes, what was you, what was she like? And he goes, um, you know, long feet, pale skin. So <laughs> he just sips his espresso while they're on this bridge in Prague. And um, I love it because they travel all over the world. So there's this adventure where it's, it's a whirlwind and they're living this life, which is on the road. It is poetic. It's beautiful. Um, it lands the comedy. It lands the romance the chemistry between the romantic couple, I won't give anything away, but it is uh, beautiful. And then um, I mentioned in the last episode that my favorite thing in a film is to not know what's going to happen in the next two minutes. Again, that's why I don't like the Marvel films because it's like, oh, hmm, I wonder if the bad guy will lose his or, or I wonder if the superhero will lose his first fight. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if he'll win the final fight. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if he'll get the girl at the end, even though he was a nerdy Spider-Man dude. Yeah. You know, it's like you know exactly what's coming. The best thing in a film is to not know what's coming. And the Brothers Bloom delivers like three or four major twists, and you're like, oh, this is taking me this way. Nope, this way. Nope. Oh, man, this way. Oh, he's really dead. No, he's not dead. Oh, you know. And it's just this constant, beautiful filmmaking with... um obviously perfect cinematography, but then all throughout the, there's these other little lines that, that you might overlook the first couple times you see it, but it's um, like this existential undertone. And if you compare the very first shot of the film and the very last shot of the film, you'll realize that it's, um, it's saying something below the comedy, even below the con, um, the conning plot line. There's just something deeper at play there. And um, you, you kind of see Ryan Johnson wrestling with what does it all mean? Um, you can live this beautiful life. You can write the perfect story. You can write your life into the most beautiful story ever told. But why does it matter? And um, I don't want to give anything away. I hate not being able to give things away. But some of the biggest things I've learned about life about blood, like literal blood. Um, ah, it's just so freaking good in this whole film. Um, I can't go on enough about this film. You just need to see The Brothers Bloom. I think it's only PG-13, so it's not even gory or anything. Um, the violence is more <laughs> cartoonish. Like, I think there's not even any real violence in it. There's a couple fists. It, there's no violence in it. Um, it's like these con men... It's hilarious. It's allusions to literature and to film and to poetry and to history. And um, yeah, just everything a film should be tied up perfectly into the Brothers Bloom. Um, I always say the only genre it doesn't actually have is horror. Um, 
I take that back. Maybe there's one or two scenes that like touch on it. It's not scary at all. Um, it's not a horror film, but like, like as far as romance, adventure, comedy, twists, turns, existential dread, like it's all there and it's on and tragedy, um, at certain points too. drama, family relationships, everything is like executed perfectly in the brother's bloom. It's a must see. You have to see the brother's bloom if you have not. Um, and then when you watch it, watch it again. And then after you watch it a second time, message me and tell me what you thought about it. And you can message me at Ethan at ethereno.com. You can message me on Facebook at Ethan Reno Official, Twitter and Instagram at Ethan Reno. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on any of these films. Send me your own lists, your top tens of the decades. Um, I want to hear what your favorites are. Um, I'm also curious to see how many of mine you've heard of. I know that uh, mine are kind of unique, um, some of them. But please watch The Brothers Bloom. Tell me what you think. Tell me how much you love it. If you don't love it, I'm going to assume that you're blind and deaf and um, <laughs> just didn't understand it at all. Um, so anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, uh, seriously, give me feedback on my lists, on these films, and send me your own. I'd love to hear them. Um, this has been Abscond with Ethan Renault. Tune in next time because I'm going to finish off the decades with... Um, I'm lumping together 1990s and prior. So because I was born in the 90s, it makes sense that I would kind of like do that whole century. <laughs> but it's 1990s and prior next time. Um, tune in to hear that film list. And I'm excited to share that with you as well. However, as I said before, my number one of all time is The Brothers Bloom. Cannot recommend it highly enough. <laughs> so I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening. Um, please subscribe and share this with your friends if you enjoyed it. And I will talk to you very soon. Goodbye.